Welcome to PitchBook's Invisible Capital Podcast, where we use data, research, and conversation to reveal important trends and issues in the private markets. Here are your hosts, Adley Bowden and Adam Lewis. Welcome, everyone, to the Invisible Capital Podcast. We're devoting Season 1 to examining the private markets by discussing the work of PitchBook analysts and writers during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Adam Lewis, a private equity reporter for the PitchBook Newsletter, and I'll be joined today by Adley Bowden, our head of editorial and our institutional research group, along with venture capital analyst James Gelfer. Hey, everyone. This is Adley again. Uh, looking forward to a good conversation about venture capital and uh, you know what it might be like for us here during this time of crisis. Uh, James, why don't you introduce yourself and you know, kind of give everybody a little bit more on your background and you know, the role that you hold today. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm a senior strategist on the analyst team here, and I'm the lead VC analyst. Um, I've been around PitchBook for about eight years now, so um, was back around when we were only covering private equity and helped expand that into venture capital and some other areas. Uh, and then in between my time at PitchBook, I spent time at Goldman Sachs and their alternative investment and manager selection group, which um, kind of connects LPs and GPs across all sorts of alternatives. So private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, and everything in between. Wow. I mean, and James uh, recently released an analyst note dubbed Venture Funds in Times of Crisis, which uh, kind of explores how these venture capital vehicles, uh, you know, as it says, perform during times of economic duress. So uh, we're just going to grill you with about a dozen questions from that today, if that's all right. Perfect. I love talking about fun performance. <laughs> that's right. That's what the people want. Um, what was, so what was your, uh, approach to researching for this report and like, what were some of the big questions you were trying to answer? Yeah. So this is actually one of a series of notes that we did really digging into all the, the fund data that we have at PitchBook, trying to understand how, you know, private market funds are going to interact. And so we worked really closely with the um, analysis team here, Zane Parmeen on the data analyst team to kind of figure out, you know, what were the important questions to be asking? Um, and obviously it comes down to, you know, capital calls on one side, how quickly investments are being made and then distributions on the other side of it. Um, so what we did is took the data and kind of aggregated everything together. So you could get a sense of what that industry looks like throughout different economic cycles. And we pulled the data all the way back to 1996. And so you can kind of see, you know, through the dot-com crisis, what happened to the VC funds. And then once again, through uh, the, global, the great financial crisis. And then, you know, in the 10 years since then, how things have expanded. So I think it's, you know, an informative view. Obviously, you know, history never fully repeats itself. Um, but we think that there's some interesting data in there that can kind of give insight into what's likely to happen. The other thing um, is that we also have information on all the funds that are currently in market right now. And so that can kind of give you a sense of, you know, where there are deviations and where there are, you know, are likely to be trend lines that uh, don't match up with what we saw last time. Mm -hmm. And what was the biggest lessons, I guess, you pulled away from those different financial crashes, whether it was the dot-com boom or, um, you know, the recession in 2008? Or, or anything else you looked at? Yeah, so I think like most people um, kind of intuitively understand is that people tend to pull back in a downturn. And so what we saw is that investment rates plummeted, um, you know, both during the dot-com era as well as during the GFC. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion lately, and, you know, our data definitely shows this, is those funds that were investing throughout 2008 through 2010, um, which is really when the height of the recession and the uncertainty last time um, tended to have better performance um, than the funds that were investing before them. And I think that people have really kind of taken that lesson to heart this time in terms of, you know, all the rhetoric that you hear out of VCs is that now is the time to be investing. And so 
on the side of you know making new investments, that was one thing that definitely stood out is you did see that pullback last time around. Um, the other thing that we saw and that um, people are looking at this time is you know the performance for funds that were investing prior to the crisis. And so when you think about the GFC, that means you know the funds that were raised in 05, 06, 07 and deploying capital in the run-up, um, what you really saw there was a prolonged deterioration in fund performance. Interestingly, the funds that were able to recover were the ones that were kind of raised closest to the crisis and had a little bit more runway. So kind of think, you know, 06, 07 in the last crisis. Um, it was the 03, 04 or 05 funds that, you know, really kind of had that long-term impairment of performance. Um, when we look at this time, what that kind of indicates is those funds that are centered around 2017 and 2018 are going to be the ones that are probably going to be hit hardest in terms of performance um, because they were investing, you know, at these heightened valuations in the run-up. Um, and we definitely see that in the data in terms of, you know, the value held of those funds is unprecedented for how young they are right now. And so, you know, there's a lot of discussion about portfolio markdowns and whether those realizations are gonna come. And so we definitely saw during the last crisis, not only were there write-downs, but also, you know, hold times extended. And it definitely seems like the way that, you know, our data is looking at funds are probably gonna be in a similar position this time around. How did uh, performance look on that IRR versus cash multiples. Obviously, the IRR gets hit with that extended hold time, but did cash multiples get impacted as well, or did they hold through and that those ended up uh, staying, you know, strongish or in line? Yeah, so um, definitely recommend that people download this because it's a little bit easier to, you know, look at the visualization. But what you see is you definitely get impairment on both sides, but you get more of a recovery on the cash multiple side than you do on the IRR side, naturally. Because if you think about, you know, the longer it takes to return capital, the more that's going to depress your IRR. And so what you saw these funds do is they took longer to exit companies. Oftentimes they were able to get to the value that they wanted. It just took them a couple of years longer. And so the longer term impairment happens on the IRR side, um, but the cash multiple like I was saying, you know, particularly for those 04, 06 funds, you actually saw, you know, the TVPI dip considerably and rise before um, to higher levels than it was pre-crisis. And so there definitely was the recovery. It just took longer than it typically would. James, do you think that the money that will be going out over the next, you know, six to 12 months for VCs, will that be geared uh, more toward investments or more toward just keeping a lot of their portfolio companies afloat right now? I think we've already seen it and it's going to continue to be kind of focused on follow on investings in the existing portfolio, uh, particularly for the later stage funds. You know, those really early micro funds, typically reserve capital isn't as big of an issue for them because they're you know really focusing on that kind of initial seed capital driving the returns for them. Um, but it's the funds that are, you know, the early stage, the multi-stage funds that are really, you know, thinking about their reserve capital and think about their portfolio in terms of, you know, we're going to fund X number of companies initially, X percentage is going to get a follow-on financing, and we're going to spread that across this many deals. You're definitely seeing that math starting to change. And I think another interesting you know, data point that came out from some of our research is that recent vintage funds have been calling capital more quickly than at any time since the dot-com crisis. So that what that means is that it was already less reserve capital in those funds than there has been historically. And now you're seeing a situation where those you know existing portfolio companies need more reserve capital than they had anticipated. Um, and so, you know, the market in recent years, the way that firms have been dealing with that is just coming to market more quickly, raising larger funds and spending less time in between them. That's obviously, you know, not 
as realistic in the current environment. And so I think that's one thing that we're really concentrating on. You definitely hear it from VC investors is that, you know, the capital for new deals is going to be harder to come by. Um, so you're seeing a lot of firms go back to existing investors and we're actually seeing some deal terms being applied retroactively um, in those situations where some firms are demanding that all existing investors participate in order to not be diluted. And, you know, some of those more punitive terms that we saw last time around are definitely coming for companies that are being forced to raise in the environment that we have today. What are some ways that venture capital firms are, I guess, what strategies are they using to mitigate the kind of expected slowdown and exits through IPOs or maybe an acquisition from a big uh, corporate acquirer or a private equity firm or whoever? Yeah, I would say, you know, when it comes to liquidity right now, it's going to be difficult to have you know, a favorable outcome. Um, when it comes to the IPO market, obviously there's lots of volatility. Um, we've seen a lot of IPOs pulled. In recent weeks, basically the only activity in the IPO market has been coming from either biotechs or from SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. Um, so really kind of, you know, isolated in terms of the liquidity you're saying there. We've seen a couple of new companies come recently, but it's really been ones that are, you know, catering to the current environment. So think cloud infrastructure, online gaming, things like that. Um, and then when it comes to M&A, the M&A, a activity we've been seeing in the VC space has really been focused on distressed opportunities. So acquisitions of either talent or intellectual property. Um, when you think about whether it's a financial acquirer, a private equity firm or strategic acquirer, um, you know, in a corporate right now, everything is on sale more or less. Um, when you think about what's happened in public markets. And so they're really looking at things that are being discounted. Um, so if you think about it from a VC perspective, if you have a high growth business that you're trying to get, you know, a rich valuation on, um, quite frankly, buyers have their minds focused on other things at this point. Um, and so I think in terms of liquidity, what we're seeing is it's really kind of those more challenging situations where, you know, either you're going to wind down the company or try to get something for it. And then the other thing that has really risen in recent years um, is the secondary market. And so we've already seen some consolidation there of some of these secondary markets that allow both company insiders as well as VCs to exchange shares. And we think that that is going to be something that only increases um, in terms of importance uh, it, during, during this time right now is we, we do expect to, to see a bit of a hiatus in terms of exits, particularly after last year, which was, you know, an order of magnitude higher than any other record year that we've seen thanks to a lot of those big IPOs. It seems like VCs might have oriented towards later stage. Uh, there's been a number of unicorn rounds. You've seen companies like Robinhood, which even experienced kind of product failures at key moments of the market crisis go on and raise uh, large rounds. Is, do you think that's part of VC strategy in trying to protect kind of early stage investments because late stage? Or do you think that's uh, more move to low risk investments by taking these late stage companies where they know that there's going to be a successful outcome if they can just hang on? Yeah, I think both those things are at play. I think, you know, another thing to keep in mind is a lot of these late stage companies now are more or less, you know, looking like public market companies. And so if you think about what you saw for a lot of big public companies, they immediately drew down their revolving credit lines. They went out and tries to raise as much capital as possible. And so even though you're private, these companies, you know, their balance sheets look very similar and they're in a similar mindset. And so I think one of it is, one thing at play is that like, there's just a lot more value to be lost there too for these VCs. If you think about the value of an early stage company being, you know, 25 to 50 million, whereas these companies are worth several billion, obviously that's where the value is to be lost. And so that's where you put your attention. And then as I was mentioning with the financial metrics, a lot of these companies are able to, you know, show evidence of, you know, revenue earnings. And it's a little bit easier to get comfortable putting large sums behind that. Whereas, you know, a company that is adjusting its burn rate and is still a couple of years away from profitability is a little bit harder to you know double down there. Yeah, to piggyback off 
kind of what Adley was asking. You were just saying, it seems like over the past, I don't know, decade, there have been all of these VC-backed companies that have valued just growing at an incredible rate with no like real care about profitability. Do you think there will be more of an emphasis now to become profitable if like you're a startup? Yeah, I think you were definitely already starting to see that coming into this year, um, mm-hmm. given some of the high profile, uh, you know, IPOs last year that right. kind of kind of fell on their face when public investors started to them a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I will say, you know, I I feel like it definitely is d- depends on the, the market that you're operating in. You know, I think you know Zoom is the example gets thrown up right now, but there's a whole bunch of companies that you know focus on enterprise, focus on you know collaboration software. That I think right now, you know, if you're not you know, burning extra cash to try to gain market share, there's probably something wrong with your business. Um, so I would say in general, that kind of push to profitability is there, but there's always going to be in VC, you know, that depreciation that, you know, depending on the business model, depending, depending on when you, where you are in the life cycle, um, that there's times to hit the accelerator. If we get back to the fund performance side for a moment, uh, distributions, you guys spent a lot of time in the note kind of looking at cash flow profiles and what happened in the GFC and before with distributions. Maybe Kind of touch on that and what you expect to see um, happening with sort of you know the current economic crisis we're we're in the early days of. You know, like I mentioned, exits are definitely going to go down, and exits and distributions highly correlated to each other. So we're de- definitely expecting a drop in distributions. You know, one of the things when you think about distributions, it, there, there's an equation where. You, from an LP perspective, you have money in coming out, right? And so when we think about for the last 10 years since the global financial crisis, those net cash flows for LPs have been positive consistently uh, every single year. So that means that the distributions have outstripped the contributions. They're getting more capital back from their VC funds than they can redeploy. Um, we're already starting to see those distributions dry up, and we think that's going to lead to a regime change sometime in late 2020, where you know for the first time in a decade, if you're an LP and a VC, Fund, you're probably going to start to have more capital being called from you than you're getting distributed back. And I think that's one of the you know fundamental things that is going to change in the industry this time around. You know, a lot of people have been talking about the denominator effect and what this means for the fundraising capital going forward, given that a lot of the fundraising strength in recent years has been these distributions that are being recycled. There's a couple of factors at play that we think are going to mitigate some of the concern. One is that a lot of the biggest institutional investors were largely under allocated to private markets um, when they came in to the current situation. And so most of the public pensions we've been talking to are still under allocated, despite the drawdown that they've seen in public equities. Um, so we think that there's still a little bit of a buffer there for them to continue investing. Um, and then particularly in VC, just because access is so important, um, when there's a top tier VC firm raising capital, if you have access to them, you're going to write the check. You know, you're going to find ways that you can to get access. And particularly with how small VC tends to be for most of these portfolios, you know, it's five, you know, maybe somewhere between five and 10%. Um, typically people will find what they need to do to stay invested. I think where, you know, you might start to see a little bit of an issue with distributions drying up and people having trouble is those smaller, less institutionalized funds, you know, the family offices that, you know, maybe they're not intending on re-upping with a manager for three or four funds, which is the case, you know, with an endowment or a pension. I think that's where you probably see more risk of, you know, some of the institutional investors being more flighty. But all in all, we think that, you know, even with the, pullback and distribution we're saying that like the ecosystem in general should remain pretty strong and then quick shout out to some of your previous research on the persistence of uh manager performance if you go deep into our archives and want to understand why people don't give up those good manager slots uh check out that note and then when you mentioned that the uh, pensions and others were under allocated to the private strategies vcpe specifically that was against their target 
allocations, right? That wasn't just kind of your assessment that they're under allocated, but. It, it, exactly. So, you know, if you use a generic pension, let's say that its target was 10%, um, many of them were at seven or 8% coming yeah. into the current situation. Yeah. Did you guys look in the note and the research using and others at the delay and kind of when the private market valuations bottomed versus the public markets? And, you know, let's knock on wood that the public markets have, have bottomed uh, and, you know, are going to go further. Curious what you kind of saw in the echo effect and when you think we might see the private market valuations, um, you know, begin to get back to growth. Yeah. So what we've seen consistently in the data is that private market funds, whether it's venture or any other type of fund are slower to mark things to market both on the upside and on the downside. Um, so what we saw during the last um, crisis was, is about a three to four quarter lag, depending on, you know, the funds that you were looking at. We actually think that there's going to be slight less of a lag this time because there's been some changes around um, valuation standards and some more guidance about, you know, how you should be marking things to market. And so some of the initial things that we've seen on the private equity side, which is the best proxy, because a lot of those firms are public and actually have to, you know, report what their NAV marks are, is a lot of the big PE firms mark down things um, between eight and 12% in the first quarter. Um, and if you think about where public equities were at the end of the first quarter, a lot of them were down 20 to 30%. And so, you know, on the VC side, I definitely think that you're going to see markdowns, but they're not going to be nearly as significant. Um, you know, going back to, as we were talking about before, the late stage versus the early stage, I think where you're probably going to see some of the bigger markdowns is at the late stage, um, because those companies have a lot easier comps. Whereas if you're an early stage company that, you know, has an MVP or maybe a little bit of revenue, um, it's, you know, a lot more guesswork goes into the valuation. Whereas if you're, you know, a company that's doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, it's pretty easy to look at the public markets and see how those companies have been affected in the current situation. Um, you know, and particularly in VC, you know, a lot of these investors, their portfolio isn't purely in private market companies. They have a mix of public and private. And so when you're seeing one side of your portfolio marked down drastically, it's, you know, kind of hard to get that level of comfort of saying, well, this company looks the same, but I'm not going to mark it down nearly as much. And so, yeah, you're definitely going to see a little bit of a delay, not as much as last time. And those markdowns um, should not be nearly as severe as what we saw on the public side. Given how poorly the public markets did and some of the losses that private equity firms and other VCs have realized, how patient can LPs like institutional investors, such as endowments or family offices, like you mentioned, how patient can they be? A part of it depends on the type of institution. And so, you know, sovereign wealth funds are an example of like, typically they're supposed to be around in perpetuity. And so theoretically their investment timeline is forever. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing that's interesting in uh, the current situation is some of these institutional investors, college endowments are a good example. They're being kind of called upon to help fill budget gaps. And so that is definitely going to change the calculus for them. Um, but by, by and large, when these institutions go into private markets, it's with the understanding that it is, you know, you're committing capital for a decade or more. Oftentimes, you know, they have plans where they're making annual commitments to maintain that over time. And so, you know, most investors, especially the sophisticated ones, I think are positioned and ready for this period of illiquidity. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot here. If you rewind just, you know, six to eight months ago, the discussion was how can we get more liquid in our portfolios um, just because returns were so low. And so, you know, I, while I think the conversation has shifted, I don't think it's fundamentally changed all that much for some of these investors whose time horizons are, you know, decades as opposed to mm -hmm. weeks or months as we see in the public markets. Right. And they've, I mean, they may not have been preparing for a global pandemic, but a lot of them have been, you know, thinking about a recession now for a few years, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've got questions about some of the sovereign wealth funds and other quote unquote tourists, people worried about them leaving. Um, and it's been interesting. Not only have they been very vocal in saying, you know, we're going to continue investing, but a lot of the biggest deals recently have actually, you know, been led by sovereign wealth funds and some of these supposed tourists. And so, um, you know, I definitely think you're seeing that they're going to be a little bit more sticky um, than people might, might have anticipated coming into this. This is all great stuff, James. Thanks for the insight. Um, just curious, like what's what's coming next down the pike? So, you know, one of the things that we're really digging into um, is that cohort of non-traditional investors. And so uh, Kyle, one of the analysts on our team, has just published research on uh, the Vision Fund and kind of its influence on the market. Um, we have a note out on corporate venture capital firms. He's publishing one next week on sovereign wealth funds. And so kind of digging into like the different motivations um, and, you know, how, why deals tend to look differently depending on the types of investors that are involved. I mean, he's also covering the venture debt space, which we haven't talked much about that, but that's something that's definitely getting more attention right now is, you know, financing, like I mentioned, valuations um, are under pressure. And so if you can raise non-dilutive financing, um, that's what everyone is trying to do right now. Other things we're looking into is um, with all the focus on healthcare, uh, we just brought on a new analyst um, who has a PhD in regenerative medicine. So he's going to be digging into the biotech space for us. And then Cameron Stanfill, who's one of the more tenured analysts on our team, he's been doing a lot of work um, looking at public market activities. So going to be releasing some kind of index and some aftermarket kind of performance stuff um, on the VC side to better understand, um, you know, what leads to the best outcomes. Excellent. That sounds like you guys will be will be busy then. Um, You'll be uh, uh, keeping us busy on the podcast here, trying to exactly get the summaries of all that. Yeah. Plenty of people for you guys to interview coming up. Thanks to James Gelfer for joining us for today's episode. As always, you can go to pitchbook.com slash podcast for the show notes and other relevant materials. I'm Adam Lewis. And I'm Adley Bode. Thank you for listening to this episode of PitchBook's Invisible Capital Podcast. Invisible Capital Podcast.